All right, thank you, Brother Dalton. Great singing tonight. Let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. If you please find Ephesians chapter 4. Let me ask you, how many of you went to in and out after the sermon last week? Anybody? You went before you went to this, came to the sermon. Okay. Well, uh, I hope that uh, everybody, the next time you see that in and out sign, that you think about just the wonderful change that God's brought about in our hearts through the uh, saving gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been kind of excited about the messages that I've been preparing for the next few weeks in the book of Ephesians, where we're really in a section of the book that I, I just love to talk about, and I've enjoyed... Uh, preparing the messages. Some of the titles that we've got coming up in the next few weeks is Stop Lying, It's a Mad, Mad World, There's Honor and Honesty, Bite Your Tongue, and Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. And uh, we'll be talking about that in the next few weeks. So it's a great, great place to study. The book of Ephesians, just so much that we can learn here. But we're in um, uh, chapter 4 tonight, and we're looking at verses 22 through 24. And we are talking about the change that takes place in a person's life when he comes to know Christ. And the gospel of Christ transforms spiritually dead people into spiritually alive, heaven-bound saints. And in chapter 4, this great section of Ephesians, Paul is giving Christians encouragement in their Christian lives just to go on to maturity, to stand for the Lord and and learn what the Lord wants us to do and just uh, dedicate ourselves wholly to Him. Now, the Bible's teaching us here that what needs to go out is our old man, the old corrupt man, and what we need to do is bring in the new man created in holiness and righteousness. That's what we're going to talk about. So let's stand, if you would, please. We'll look at these... uh, Three verses, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse number 22. That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Just so much to be in your house on Wednesday night. We thank you, Lord, for everyone who's come out to listen to your word and to learn something. We just ask you, Lord, you'd open our hearts that we might receive what you'd have us to know. And, Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to you. May we send that old man away, and may we live in the new man created in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to take a few minutes to review some of the things that we talked about in last week's lesson. And we began speaking about the problem that exists with the old man. And of course, when I'm talking about the old man, I'm speaking about what we were before we came to know Christ as our Savior. And if you remember, the the first point last week as we talked about this was the corruption of the old man. Paul says here, they're put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. And I want you to remember that the word conversation is an old, old English word. It doesn't mean the same thing that it does, that it did back in 1611 when the King James Bible was translated. But this word conversation actually means our whole manner of life. It means our behavior in our life. And uh, Paul says, as a born-again Christian, we're to put away all those ways that we used to live in. Now, the old nature, he says, is corrupt. It's destructive. And it's exactly as Paul has described it in other places in this book. Just previous to the uh, uh, verses that we're studying tonight, Paul told us that the old man's understanding is darkened. He said that we are, were apart from God. Uh, he said that we tended towards lasciviousness. 
And that actually means that we live in lust, and as I spoke to you last week, animal desires is what that actually means. Now, back in chapter 2, he said that the old man was without hope and without God in the world. But I would suppose that the really the most telling thing that he says here when he speaks about the old man is how he describes it in Ephesians 2, verse number 1, when he says that he is dead in trespasses and sin. Now, Paul paints then a picture of a person without Christ as being one who's just simply uh, utterly hopeless. We're we're totally depraved. Uh, There's no way that we can come to God without God helping us to do that. And the word of God here, Paul uses the word corrupt. And Jesus had something interesting to say about corruption in the book of Matthew. And he said in Matthew chapter 7, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And so corruption will never yield anything that's good. And just like a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit that's good for you to eat, so a a person without Christ and his evil heart could never yield anything that's positive towards God. Now, maybe you don't understand that. I think most of you do. But it certainly means that a person could never find faith from within himself. That would be impossible. Uh, faith has to be God-given. And this shows us that man can never come to God first. God always has to speak and he has to move us towards him. God moves first. And no man comes to Christ unless the Holy Spirit draws him. So that would mean then that it's utterly useless for us to talk about man's cooperation in salvation because that's not possible. God never asks for our cooperation to save us. What he does do is to secure our our willingness and to secure our cooperation. And he does that by changing our heart and changing our will so that we'll come into conformity with his will. That's impossible for for it to happen any other way. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said in the 13th chapter, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to evil. And what Jeremiah is saying that it is just as unlikely or impossible is a better word to say that a person could repent of his sins and turn to God without God actually changing his heart uh, as he does that as, as it would be for a person to even change the color of his skin. It's utter impossibility. But not only is man corrupt, but man also grows continually corrupt. He gets worse and worse all of the time. You see, if you could take a person and, and if it were possible that you could do this, that you could catch that person right at the commission of his very first sin, nobody knows when that is, but in a hypothetical case, let's say that you could catch a person right at the moment that he committed the first sin, it would be impossible for that person to be saved unless the Holy Spirit were to change him and draw him to him. It couldn't be done. Now, when you add on top of that, that we've, we've, we've committed so many sins, we've gone so long in sin, then the, the possibilities of that ever happen get slimmer and slimmer. Well, there were always none, but it's utterly impossible, totally impossible that a person should come to Christ because we're radically and totally depraved. So that's why we say that God has to move us first. Now, the next thing that we talked about was the crucifixion of the old man. And what is it that we're to do with this old corrupt man? Well, he's to be crucified. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Our old man 
this, this crucified old man no longer has any control over us. We just don't have to live under the bondage of sin. Now, many people think that we do, and sin is just a way that we have to live, but, but it's not. The tense of the verbs in this passage shows us that, that this is an action that's already been completed. The old man is already dead. It's a completed action. A transaction has taken place, and so that old man is crucified. The corrupt man is crucified. But the problem is, many Christians don't realize that this has been done, and so they just live like they used to live. We don't have to do it. And the only reason that we do is because we have willingly subjected ourselves to that. The devil's fooled us into thinking that we have to do those things, but we simply don't. The old man is dead, we don't have to sin, and we can come out from under that again, or, or, or come out from that uh, since we've been changed. Now, I like the way that uh, Charles Wesley put it in the hymn that he wrote, And Can It Be?, which is really one of my favorite hymns. But he said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that's what Jesus has done. He set us free from the chains of sin. And now what we need to do is just realize that and act upon the knowledge that we have. Well, that's talking about the out part. The, the old man goes out, but now something has to come in. So we want to move on now. We want to talk about the end part. The old man goes out and the new man comes in. So thirdly, the third point of the outline is the creation of the new man. Now, once again, that is a completed action. Just like the old man has been defeated and crucified is a completed action, so the, the uh, um, creation of the new man is also a completed action. This is not growing into salvation. I mean, justification is an instantaneous process. You don't grow into your salvation. It takes place at the moment that you put your faith in Christ, then that process is over and it's complete. It doesn't occur over an extended period of time. So once your, 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 your faith has been placed in Jesus, at that moment, you're justified. Now, there are many denominations who confuse justification with sanctification. And what they try to do is to place sanctification before justification. Well, as I said, justification comes first. That's instantaneous. But sanctification is not an instantaneous process. There is a type of sanctification that is. That is, when we, when we get saved, we are set apart to God. But in order to become holy like God is holy, this is a process that takes place throughout our whole lives. That's a continual thing. And if you didn't really read this well and understand the background of what Paul is saying, uh, you would know that that's exactly the way that Paul is putting it in these verses. The connecting verse between these two thoughts of putting off the old man and bringing in the new man is verse number 23. And it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, on the back side of that statement is the crucifixion of the old man and uh, the corrupt old man. And that has already been done. It's the completed action. Justification has taken place. So what happens in verse number 22 is what you call a fait accompli. But in verse number 23, this is the connecting verse. This, is a, this, this contains a verb that's in a different tense. It shows here a continuous action. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So this is something that's ongoing. It's taking place all of the time. And that's what we call the sanctification. So the new man has been created. 
And all of us, of course, know that verse that we use so often in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things, behold, uh, all things are become new. And as you know, the word uh, crea- creature there is best translated as creation. We're a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now, this new creation is something made out of something that didn't exist before. This is not a reformation. And many people think that that's what salvation is about. It's, about. it's about reforming ourselves, trying to get better, trying to do better, and that's our salvation. But salvation and justification are, are not a, a, re- a reforming process. Now, people like to try to change the outside. I mean, you can take a, a woman, a, a mean, old, nagging woman, and give her a facelift, and she looks different on the outside, but on the inside, she's just an, still an old, nagging woman. I mean, she's a, maybe a little bit better looking on the outside, but she's still the same on the inside. So a facelift never changes what we are on the inside, and reforming ourselves doesn't change the inside. That's what happens in salvation and justification. The inside gets changed. And it's put this way in Ezekiel chapter 36. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. So this old heart that before was insensitive to God... You remember we talked about that in the preceding verses about how the the heart is seared, and the conscience is seared, and it's like cauterizing nerves. Well... That old heart has been taken away, and God has put a new heart inside of us, new, new uh, uh, feelings and emotions and, and everything that's the, just in the makeup of man spiritually, God has redone. He's recreated. So now we have a new heart in us, and that heart is soft and tender, and that heart is able to respond to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this brings in some very important theological concepts when we start with verse number 24. So I want to talk about some things here that happened when the new man comes in. First of all, there's a restoration of spiritual capabilities. Now, last week as we were talking about this, uh, I told you that this is the real battleground for the doctrines of grace. What happened in the fall of man? Just what took place when man fell? Well, his spiritual capabilities were destroyed. Because of the fall of Adam, all are spiritually dead. And a spiritually dead person can never do spiritually alive actions. So a person cannot awaken himself from death, not from physical death, and neither can a person who's spiritually dead awaken himself from spiritual death. That takes an operation of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's one aspect of what we've lost in the fall, that inability to come to Christ in the natural man. But it's actually uh, concerns a lot more than just that because the Bible teaches us that the fall of man actually left us bereft of any spiritual goodness at all. And so the scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's a very simple, plain statement. Righteousness means to do right. And the fall left man without the ability to do right. So the first thing that man did religiously was to go about trying to to establish his own righteousness. And that's what Adam did when he, in the garden. As soon as he fell, he tried to make things right by going out there and making those fig leaves and, and clothing himself. And that way he would hide his nakedness from God. And so that was his attempt to be right with God. So Adam tried to take care of his own problem. And men have always been that way. 
Romans chapter 1, Paul explains that. And he says how that men looked at the heavens and saw the glory of God and could see what was out there. And instead of worshiping God and turning towards Him, instead they changed the glory of the incorruptible God, he says, into an image made like corruptible man. So you can see that in the fall, all spiritual capabilities were destroyed. It's all gone. And that's a point that's made over and over and over again in the Scriptures. Now, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He said, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And he says in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now, that's what the fall did. Now, do we have that Scripture up there? Now, you'll notice when I quoted the Scripture here, I have two ellipses there. One after verse number 18 and one at the end of verse number 19. Now, in those ellipses is actually where restoration is made. So now let's read the verse completely as the Bible quotes it, or says it. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So what happened in the new birth was that the the believer's spiritual capabilities were restored. So God initiates the new birth. That's a sovereign act of His. It's completely apart from anything that we can do. And that's because we're lost. We're we're insensible to our sin. Uh, We're not going to turn to God. But then God awakens the sinner to life. And then those spiritual capabilities are restored. And at that point, that's when a man can begin to exercise his will in order to trust Christ. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is not a process that's drawn out over time. Those that are in the, have been in the Sunday morning forum class, we've gone over this many, many times before. But the new birth and the exercise of repentance and faith is not something that takes place over a, a long period of time. Actually, these things occur all at the same time. And so when a person is brought to life at the very same time, he exercises his repentance and faith in Christ. But, but if you break that out and you want to see exactly how it has to occur, then you have to see that the regeneration comes first. He's brought to life, and then he exercises repentance and faith. And that's, it has to be in that order. And that's exactly the way that the Baptist confessions of faith have stated it. Our confession of faith, the New Hampshire Confession, in article number 7 of Grace and Regeneration says, We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And I'll stop right with that statement. The word secure in that, in that statement is, is extremely important because what that is expounding or saying to us, this is the irresistible grace of God. And that's one of our doctrines, to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. And so you notice in the confession of faith that it calls repentance and, fa- uh, uh, repentance and faith fruits and not causes of regeneration. Regeneration comes and the fruits of that are faith and repentance. So that's the evidence. But we'd also notice the last 
few words of the statement says, fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. And that's exactly what I've been talking about tonight. And you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's the newness of life. Now, if you keep those things in order, just like I've given you tonight, if you keep the order of regeneration, repentance, and faith, then you'll never be forced into the error of synergistic salvation. You'll never make a statement like this. You do your part, and God does his part. And you'll never begin a sentence like that professor at West Coast Baptist College who said, if it's all about God, it is all about God. And when you get this in the right order, you're never going to get that mixed up. It will always be all about God. Now, I I would have to say uh, shame on Baptists who have perverted the gospel of Christ to the place that we put man before God and that we say that man's will is superior to God's will. It's not. And as long as I'm preaching here, I will always be preaching, it's all about God. And if I change that, then you drag my derriere out on the street, throw me right out in the middle, let the cars run over me. It's always all about God. But let's go on here because there's another great doctrine that's taught in these verses. Uh, The second thing is return to the image of God. Now, one of the things I, I really love about church, I love singing. I love the old hymns that we sing. And I've told you many times before that in the old hymns, hymns, we find some really good theology. Some of the old hymns like And Can It Be that I quoted a moment ago. Of course, Amazing Grace, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. Many of those hymns, um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken that we sing. I love those old hymns. But one of the old hymns that we sing around Christmas time is one that was written by Charles Wesley. And that's, that's the song, Hark! the herald angels sing. And it's got a great line in it as it it fits right into the point that I'm making tonight. Before I tell you what that is, I just want to make you aware that John and Charles Wesley are, I guess what you would call an enigma in in, uh, church history. Because sometimes you can uh, listen to things that Charles Wesley said in his his, uh, hymns and he sounds like he believes the doctrines of grace right down the line. Then you turn around and you read what John Wesley wrote and you see some things there that look like synergistic salvation and almost exactly what fundamental Baptists believe today. So they're kind of enigmas. Sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly what they believe and what they mean. But Charles Wesley did have a good line in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In one verse he says, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. And what he's talking about is in the fall we lost our image of God. We lost righteousness and holiness. And so that to that degree, we lost uh, God's image. Now, Adam, of course, was created in righteousness and holiness, but when he fell, he lost his image of God. So he lost holiness and righteousness. And that's why when God came looking for him in the Garden of Eden, Adam had to hide himself. Adam had to hide because he could no longer come into the presence of God. Without holiness and righteousness, you can't approach God. Now, because of the fall, all of us are in exactly the same place. We can't approach God. We could never come into God's presence. This is why that I say, and you've heard me preach, that a a person who's lost has no right to even offer a prayer to God. God won't entertain that because God doesn't let people into his presence without holiness and righteousness. And the only way that a person can become righteous is through the work of Jesus Christ. 
because Christ is holiness and righteousness. So in order for a man to be restored to the image of God, he has to have that holiness and righteousness given back to him. Now, that's putting man right back into the state that he was in before he fell. He's in the image of God, or will be in the image of God, because righteousness and holiness have been restored. And again, the only way that that can be done is through the work of Christ. But that brings me right up to the next point, because in the new creation, we also renew our relationship with God. Now, here's where I need to go back to a a very important doctrine, and this is one that's a very familiar theme of my preaching. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. Man's completely devoid of righteousness. But the problem is, righteousness is exactly what God requires. If you're going to be in a relationship with God, there has to be righteousness. So how is it possible for us to get this righteousness? Now, that's where salvation by almost all denominational churches, including Roman Catholicism, goes wrong. They mess up on, in this area right here. This is where Roman Catholicism is wrong. It's where Methodism goes wrong, where the Lutherans are wrong, Pentecostals, and so on, because uh, they have a different idea of how a man can be made righteous. So most denominational churches, along with Roman Catholicism, teaches, teach that God enables a person to do acts of righteousness, and by those acts, he obtains favor with God and is kept in favor with God. Now, whenever you hear somebody say something like, it's possible for you to lose your salvation, then this is exactly what they're saying. They're saying that righteous acts are what keep me in favor with God. And if you don't have enough righteous acts, then you can lose your salvation. So essentially, that's the thinking of every person who's without Christ. And you know it to be true because you go and ask a person, are you going to go to heaven? Do you believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And people say, well, I hope so. I hope that I've been good enough to go to heaven. And then sometimes you run across people who say, no, I'm not going to heaven. I haven't been good enough. I'm no saint. You ever hear anybody say that? I'm no saint. And they say, I'm not going to go to heaven. Well, the root of that is exactly the same. Both cases are exactly the same. It's a belief that somehow I can be made righteous with God by what I do. Now, here's the whole thing. Here's the whole thing. Yes, Well, let's start with this. No, you can't earn righteousness, but yes, righteousness must be earned. Now, the problem is then, if I can't earn righteousness, how am I going to get righteousness that's earned? Well, you see, that's a dilemma for us, isn't it? The only righteous acts that God will accept are perfectly righteous acts. And since all of us are imperfect, all of us sin, we could never do perfectly righteous acts. So the only person who was ever able to live perfectly would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what is perfect righteousness? Strict, unfailing adherence to God's laws. And Christ is the only one who is able to do strict obedience and adherence to God's laws. Now, here's what we understand about Christ. Certainly, Jesus came into the world to die. We know he came to die for sin. But we can't overlook the fact that Christ came also into the world to live. And he had to live for a very important purpose. And that was that he would earn righteousness. That he would be able to demonstrate that it can be possible, that it was possible for him to give perfect obedience to all of God's laws so he could earn righteousness. 
Now, the reason that that's so important to us is because God is what we call intrinsically righteous. That's one of his attributes. I mean, God is just righteous. That's an attribute. But God doesn't communicate intrinsic righteousness to us. He can't because that's a godly attribute. We could never have that. So we have to have some other kind of righteousness in order to come into the presence of God. And so the righteousness that enables us to come into God's presence is earned righteousness, and it's righteousness that was earned by Jesus Christ. So because of Christ's righteousness, we can have holiness and have holiness and be righteous with God. So what Christ does then, he gives that earned righteousness to us when we receive him by faith. And that's simply what we call the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And that's a very important doctrine. Maybe you didn't know it, but there are very many, many people who do not believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. They say that's not what happens. You earn your righteousness yourself. But that's an impossibility. So Christ gives us his imputed righteousness. So his perfect obedience is substituted for our imperfect obedience. And that's the only reason why God would accept this. So that's one of the infallible proofs that we have that salvation can't be lost. And it's because when God is looking at us, he's not even looking at the acts we do as far as salvation is concerned. He's only looking at Christ. And what he sees when he sees us is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. And based upon that righteousness, then we have pardon, we have forgiveness, and we have reconciliation with God. So we have to have that, but we need to understand that we are to obey God. That's certainly important. You can't, you can't say, well, I don't need to obey God then because God's looking at Christ's righteousness. You still have to obey God, and the reason that you do that is for fellowship in order that you might have fellowship with him. Now, your obedience, whatever you do for God, whatever acts, good acts after you get saved that you might do, are not for relationship. Those things are for fellowship. Relationship's already been taken care of. That's been done by Christ's obedience and by his death on the cross. So our obedience to, to God concerns only our fellowship with him. Now, if we go back to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 17, and I want you to turn there for just a minute because we're going to read the following verses, and those verses give us the whole picture of what happens with the new creation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse number 17, I'll begin there. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now listen to verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what God has done, he's taken our sins and placed them upon Christ. Well, now we have a new term to employ here, and this is what we call double imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ, and in turn, his righteousness is imputed to us. And so that's why Paul says in verse number 21 that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
And that's what it's talking about, imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, clearly, by what Paul says there, that's not our righteousness. That's not what God's looking at. It's Christ's righteousness, and that's what he uses to reconcile us. So those, these things um, are, are, are just fundamental to us understanding what happens in the new birth and in this new creation. But now let's go on to the final point, because when God creates the new man, he also, or the man also, renounces his old character. Now, I don't want you to let this go in one ear and out the other. You need to pay attention. A person who has been created in righteousness and holiness cannot stick with his old character. The old character is not compatible with what you are as a Christian. Now, we know that we've been justified, and I've said that's an act that's full and complete. The old man is dead, the new man is created, but now we have to move on from the justification part of it and get into that realm of sanctification. And as I said, sanctification is a growth process. It's ongoing, and it doesn't happen unless you are involved in that and you do something to help that to happen. Now, I don't want you to confuse justification and sanctification. You don't have any part in justification. Make no mistake. That's monergistic. But when we talk about sanctification, we do have a part in that. And that is God expects us to now begin to live the holy life. And so sanctification is a persevering act of Christians enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to get into that a little bit, four or five more weeks down the road uh, a little bit later. But here I'm using the word persevering. We persevere in Christ. And that's also a word that, unfortunately, the West Coast Baptist College doesn't like either. In the article that I quoted last week when I was... uh, a reading uh, from that article, the, the author of the, uh, the article said, the saints do not persevere. And amazingly, he accused us of having no assurance of our salvation because we believe that God requires perseverance. Well, folks, God requires perseverance. And the thing that you have to realize is that the perseverance is enabled by the Holy Spirit. We don't persevere on our own. I mean, our works can't cause us to persevere on our own. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit behind that. So Christians do persevere. Now, I suppose that if you think that it's all right to rob the Holy Spirit of his power in regeneration, that you can also think it's all right to rob him of his power in sanctification. I mean, those things would go together. So don't get these things mixed up. Sanctification does require cooperation, but justification doesn't. So nobody gets sanctified until they've first been justified. Until they've been made holy and righteous through faith in Christ, they, won't, they, they never come to the place where they could actually be sanctified. But the, once you're on the other side of the justification, then cooperation is essential. Cooperation is essential, and it is required in your Christian life to cooperate with God. Now, of course, uh, on that point, they will say that cooperation is not required at that point. I don't know how you get these things backwards, but they'll say that cooperation is not required because if they say that it is, then that would shoot down a lot of their unchanged converts. That's the problem. So look at the scriptures. When Paul tells us to put on the new man, he's recognizing that once for all act of justification, and now he moves into the realm of proving that justification has taken place. How do you prove that justification has happened? Sanctification. 
by what the Christian does in his life. And, and Jesus said it very clearly, by their fruits you shall know them. That's the sanctifying process. So <clears throat> that has to happen. Uh, it's absolutely necessary that we do persevere. And I think it's, it's really a travesty that, that these doctrines have been so twisted and perverted by those who carry around with them the name of Baptist. Now, quickly, I'm going to give you three things that you need for sanctification. Real quickly. Number one, you need reading. Number two, you need prayer. Number three, you need fellowship. First of all, you've got to read the Bible. The psalmist said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? In the 11th verse of that same chapter, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So you have to have a working knowledge of the word of God in order to make this sanctifying process take place. Now, sometimes you don't feel like reading the Bible. Anybody ever get into that shape? You don't feel like reading the Bible? That happens to all of us. Well, the thing for a Christian to do is get out of anything that has to do with feelings and emotions. Did you know the devil wants to keep you in feelings and emotions? That's where he likes for you to stay. Forget about feelings and emotions. It doesn't matter whether you feel like doing or something or not. You do it simply because God says to do it, and that's for your sanctification. And when you've read enough of the Bible, you'll know. How do you know? Because you want to read some more. That's when you know you've been reading enough. You want to read more of God's Word. Second thing you need to do is pray. Now, you need to read, but you also need to pray as you read God's Word. In prayer, that's where we admit our weaknesses to God, and prayer is what brings us into conformity with God's will. Now, this is what sanctification is about as well. It's being conformed to the will of Christ, having the mind of Christ to be like Christ. And that helps... Uh, that, that process can take place as we go to God in prayer. The third thing we need is fellowship. Now, I've never met a growing Christian and a Christian who's in that process of sanctification as God requires unless he's in fellowship. You can't ignore fellowship. I was, um, I think I told you the story. I was at a car wash a couple months ago, or I don't know how long, two or three months ago, and I was... Um, waiting for my car to get done, and there was a young man that was sitting there, and he was reading his Bible. And I sat down beside him, and I asked him what he was reading. I thought he was the Ethiopian eunuch, so I asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And, uh, but now I asked him what he was reading, and actually he was reading in the book of Ezekiel, which is an odd place for somebody to, just to sit down and start reading, I think. But he told me he really enjoyed uh, reading the Word of God, and he said that he was a Christian. But as we were talking, I said, where do you go to church? He said, I don't go to church. I said, you don't go to church. He said, no, I, I don't like organized religion. Anybody here ever meet somebody? I've met a lot of people that don't go to church because they say, I don't like organized religion. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. What's the New Testament about? Isn't it about the church? Isn't it about Christ organizing a church and that it's his body and that we're in fellowship? And doesn't the New Testament talk about the growth of this church and the development of this church? The whole New Testament is all about organization. So if you say that you don't like organized religion, and I don't know, maybe there's some organized religion out there you don't like, but, but Christianity or true Christianity is, is organized to the hilt, and it should be, because God is a God of order. So we have organized religion. And Christ, as I said, organized his followers into a church. And he expects us to have fellowship. You absolutely need it. Fellowship is necessary for spiritual growth. It's a, a coming to church is a place where you, where you learn the word of God. 
And so you'll find this to be true. If you forsake the fellowship and you try to live in the world without the fellowship and you try to maintain the character of Christ, you won't make it. It won't happen. You have to have the fellowship of God's people. So what does Paul tell us here in Ephesians to do? Get rid of the old man. Put him out. Put on the new man. In with the new and out with the old. In and out. So the next time that you go to in and out, and you look at the scriptures on the, on the cup, underneath the cup, and you look at the scripture that's written in the wrapper, then you just remember this sermon, that God says we need to get rid of the old man, bring in the new man. And so you need to remember this wonderful change that's taken place in your heart. And folks, it is all about him. And I promise you this, if you continue eating greasy burgers and fries, you're going to meet him sooner than you think. So... In and out, out with the old man and in with the new. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we just ask you, Lord, even though we're feeble so many times in trying to explain and get the concepts across, yet, Lord, I pray that you might use what's been spoken tonight to help us to grow and help us to understand better what your word proclaims. I ask you, Lord, that you might bless in this invitation time. You might draw all of your people closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.